So much for a slow news summer on the political front. It's been one thing after another this week, no exception. So much going on. We're going to keep Global BC's Keith Baldry, the Vancouver Sun's Von Palmer, and BC Today's Shannon Waters on for the entire hour in order to tackle it all. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome to Inside Politics. Thanks for tuning in. It is a beautiful blue sky day here in Kamloops. A real pleasure to be joined as always by Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer and Shannon Waters. Uh, guys, I, I kind of referenced it in the intro off the top about how busy it's in. Just out of curiosity, I went back. We started the show March 5th of last year, so we're well past our one year anniversary and thanks to you guys and everyone who listened. But I can't recall... Uh, in that time, a year and a bit now, maybe more than two or three shows where we've had to really scramble for topics. It's been one thing after another for the entire time. Usual government, we have a very active new government in B.C. And there's a few things happening on the national stage as well. Uh, I'm trying to imagine what it's like in Ottawa today when you're trying to deal with the court decision on one track and NAFTA talks on the other. Yeah, it is unbelievable out there. Uh, so let's talk about uh, the big news yesterday, the uh, the Federal Court of Appeal uh, basically quashing the federal government's approval of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. That has put that entire project on pause. Trans Mountain putting out a statement late in the day yesterday saying they're standing down all their construction activity, etc. The big question now looms is is what do we do? Where do we go? What happens now, Keith? Well, I think the federal government uh, is scrambling to get this uh, project back in front of the National Energy Board uh, fairly quickly with some uh, very well-defined parameters and to answer the court's concerns. So basically, back to the phase three uh, consultation with the phase three stage of consultations with First Nations, uh, and that will have to be done in a meaningful way. And if you read the judgment, and uh, Vaughn and I poured through it yesterday, it's more, about 800 paragraphs, 260-plus pages. Uh, it pretty well documents that uh, the, the government and the National Energy Board paid lip service to First Nations' concerns. It basically was a note-taking exercise. They just listened to them, outlined their concerns, and then said, okay, thank you, on your merry way, and then, you know, next... Uh, and that's just not good enough. They have to be a two-way dialogue, is what the, the courts uh, have said. The other one is they've got to find a way to answer the marine uh, uh, traffic issue that the court said should have been part of the, the project, that the increase in shipping is, is naturally part of this project. And the concerns that arise from that, notably the potential endangerment or threat to the orca population, that has to be addressed as well. That one, I think, is going to be a little trickier than the con- increased consultation with First Nations. Uh, but they've got to find a way on to answer those two points, get it in front of the National Energy Board. They don't have to have any more hearings. They don't have to start at square one. The, the court ruling actually gives a, a roadmap, the, deliberately at the end of the judgment, a roadmap for the government to get this project back on track but it's going to be a difficult roadmap to navigate. All right, so that raises, and I want to circle back to the First Nations issue in a little bit here, but that raises the issue, can any new review or adapted review be done in a reasonable timeline? And will we see, what, a year or two, less than that? I don't know, what, what, what do you think, that how that works out, Vaughn? It's uh, <coughs> going to be tough. Mm-hmm. Court, it keeps right. I mean, the, the amazing thing about this judgment is that 
the judge and her colleagues wrote that the federal government and the National Energy Board got a lot of things right. A lot of the arguments made by Burnaby and the city of Vancouver, the province of British Columbia, even First Nations, failed. Even some of the consultations worked. Uh, so you get to the end, and uh, I guess you get about more than halfway through before you find out where they did anything wrong, and then there those two things that Keith discussed. And the court says, you know, you can fix this. Uh, you could do an expedited hearing uh, with the National Energy Board on this marine issue, and you can put a time limit on it and get that out of the way in relatively short order, and then you could do your consultations with First Nations, make them focus, do them right, and even that could be done in relatively short order. So the court, I think, is trying to say, you know, this is not the end of the road and you can fix it, but it's easy for the judge to say that. When you get it into the genuine realm of actually having to do it, how manageable would that do-over be at the National Energy Board? How do you deal with the ORCA issue? Because that's central and critical. And then uh, there's a lot of First Nations that you could consult with them till the cows come home, and they don't want this project. Mm. And you're still going to have to agree to disagree with them. So I think, uh, you know, the court tried very hard to come up with a way to save the project, but it's not the court, it's the government that actually has to implement that plan. Now, uh, Premier John Horgan reacted to this and, and uh, did a, a little bit of a victory lap. He didn't, he didn't gloat in any way, shape, or form, but uh, what did you read into his reaction, Shannon? He definitely seemed pleased. Um, he was sort of asked uh, straight up yesterday by uh, reporters whether or not, you know, it was hard to say I told you so uh, about what's happened, the court's decision. Um, and he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't quite go there, but he did say that he feels that the province has been vindicated. So even if its arguments, which he did admit were, were somewhat rushed, BC was late to the game and becoming an intervener in the case and only happened after uh, the BC NDP took power last summer. Um, so he, he felt that even though BC's arguments were dismissed, the fact that he has been talking about concerns around impacts to the coast and that, you know, marine traffic can have maybe not specifically on the killer whale, that's not so much something that Horgan has been talking about, but certainly potential impacts to the coast. And he also emphasized the fact that, you know, reconciliation is important. It's something that his government has said that they are committed to as well. And so, again, the court's ruling is is a victory in that way. And he also went out of his way, both him and Green Party leader Andrew Weaver, to sort of thank the First Nations groups who did a lot of the heavy lifting on the issue. Uh, let's circle back to that First Nations issue because I think it's one of the key ones. As we know, there's a big divide there uh, here in the Kamloops area. We have a lot of First Nations that are for. Matter of fact, a whole bunch of them along with Alberta First Nations are still working on a proposal to buy most of, if not all, of the pipeline itself. And yet we have the Tsleil-Waututh, the Squamish, uh, and a few others uh, closer to home here in Kamloops, the Coldwater Indian Band, uh, Lower Nicola, who have concerns as well. So, Keith, how do you how do you get in there, as Vaughn referenced earlier, how do you get in and convince some of these First Nations that are dead set against this pipeline well i don't think you, you do i don't think you i don't and I, i'm not sure the courts are looking for the government to convince these first nations who are opposed to the pipeline to suddenly support the pipeline but there has to be evidence of a meaningful two-way dialogue where the, there's evidence that the government has listened and tried to address some of the concerns i'm not sure what the answer is there there is a chunk in the in the in the ruling that that spells out you know what is defined by meaningful consultations and such but 
really, at the end of the day, I'm not sure exactly what the evidence has to be to convince the courts that they were actually meaningful. I don't think you're going to get Coldwater, uh, Lord Nicola, Squamish, uh, Stolo First Nations uh, on side on this. The, the concerns they have with the pipeline are spelled out in the ruling. They all have unique concerns. They're not all the same. Uh, Stolo is concerned about um, the impact on, on Aboriginal fisheries. Squamish is con- uh, more concerned about the flow of bitumen, the potential spill of bitumen. So they all have different concerns. I'm not sure they can all be addressed, but they have to be listened to, and uh, at least sh- the government sh- has to show at some point that they've, they've taken it to heart and tried to perhaps make some changes. But you're right, Shane. I'm not, I mean, you're not going to convince these bands to support this project. That's just not going to happen. But there has to be some sort of sort of meet you halfway uh, in terms of agreeing to disagree, rather than just taking notes at a hearing and say that 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 was consultation because that's not consultation. Yeah, and I think that's an important point. So, Vaughn, what does the federal government have to do? Or maybe maybe it's 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 First Nation to First Nation. Maybe some of the First Nations that are on the pro side to meet with some on the other side and kind of collectively determine what what a proper consultation means. Well, the courts actually, I think, have laid out a pretty good rule book for consultations. It's not a veto. Uh, one of the more interesting ones is a, a federal, same court, federal court of appeal, dealing with the question of whether or not First Nations were consulted and accommodated on the Site C project. And the court ruled that BC Hydro had met the test. Now, Hydro had dozens of meetings over a long, long period of time with First Nations. They compensated some of them for uh, the, uh, the impact of the project. They gave them benefit-sharing agreements. So they, they took them quite seriously. They changed parts of the project in response. At the end of the day, you had two First Nations that didn't want the project and refused to even talk much to Hydro. They didn't move at all on their position. What the court said on that was interesting. You know, it said you do not have to agree it's not a veto, and First Nations can't simply refuse to talk, to say, we don't want the project, we're not even going to talk to you. So there is a give and take, as Keith said. I think that the federal government could do it in a much more serious way and get somewhere, and they don't have to get unanimity with all the First Nations that would be affected by the project. At the end of the day, all they have to do is show the court they took them seriously, they considered their suggestions, Perhaps they changed the project in some way in response to those suggestions. Um, I think it's doable because I think governments in this country have done it, including the federal government on some other projects. BC Hydro on Site C, it is doable, uh, but in this case, the federal government didn't do it. And on the other side of that coin is the environmental argument, which is a main point of contention, not only from the Premier, but from uh, other groups, First Nations, uh, the City of Vancouver, Burnaby, etc. There's going to be a ton of oil tanker traffic, and that's going to have its own impacts. Uh, The court really focused in on that uh, resident Orca Bay, Orca killer whale population. Uh, Shannon, how do you do that? How do you balance off uh, having a ton of tanker traffic? I mean, there's some out there now against uh, what is a troubled Orca population off the coast. And I think that is likely to be sort of the, the trickier aspect here. As Keith and Vaughn have pointed out, you can have meaningful consultations with First Nations without um, having to get unanimity on the issue, without having to get sort of consent on the issue. So as long as you can figure out a way to go through that process, um, they can address that aspect of the court's concern. But when it comes to figuring out how you're going to mitigate the impacts of a significant increase in oil tanker traffic on a population of animals that is 
obviously struggling. Um, that's a whole lot trickier to do, particularly because, you know, there isn't one of the big issues, you know, obviously like a spill would be a very big problem, but one of the big issues for, for killer whales and for a lot of marine mammals is the noise that is caused by um, the ships moving through the water and there's no good there's no good way to deal with that you don't put a muffler on a boat um so i i don't know i do think that is going to be sort of a trickier concern although i will note that alberta premier rachel notley basically said that uh ottawa needs to call an emergency parliamentary session and they can just say that the marine issue has and will be dealt with and just move right along so i'm not sure on the orcas, yeah. I, mean, I mean, we're not going to be asking the National Energy Board, is it a bad idea to run all those noisy, rumbling BC ferries through these waters and disturb the orcas? Mm. We're not going to be asking them whether or not we should have all those container ships bringing all those nifty products from all over the world, in and out of Vancouver. We're not going to be asking them what if it's okay to have all those tankers go into the five, count them five, refineries in Washington state. We're only going to be saying is one more tanker a day going to have add to the impact on the orcas? I know how an environmentalist would answer that question. Mm. It's much harder to answer in economic and job creation terms. Okay. Uh, since we've got some more to talk about in this front, so why don't we hit a quick commercial break here on Radio NL, and we'll pick up our conversation on the Trans Mountain and other court matter fronts uh, right after this, right here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Shannon Waters, and Vaughn Palmer. Uh, let's continue our conversation on the Trans Mountain issue because I think there's a few things that, that are worth touching on. Uh, one I'm really interested to get your take on, Keith, is Rachel Notley's televised address yesterday uh, where she played a trump card essentially pulling Alberta out of the Federal Climate Action Plan uh, pending the Trudeau government convening a special session in the House to forge a path forward or uh, taking this whole thing to the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, what did you think of that? Oh, it was pretty dramatic. Uh, we ran her address uh, fully intact on on our global newscast at five. It was, uh, you know, she was obviously visibly angry. Uh, I think she came across quite well and quite credible. Uh, she said we're headed to a national crisis, and I I don't think she's exaggerating that. That uh, this is a uh, this is reaching crisis proportions in terms of Alberta's position on on this uh, this matter. I don't think I've, I've heard no. Um, <coughs> excuse me, indications from the federal government, from anyone in the federal government, that they're entertaining the thought of, of, of appealing this to the Supreme Court of Canada. That could take a long time. I think they want this cleared up much quicker than that, which is why I think they're going to reframe the whole thing and send it to the Energy Board and not go to the Supreme Court of Canada. There may be a, an emergency session of the House. Uh, Trudeau needs to work, needs to throw Notley a bone here, and I think it's going to be the fact that he wants to expedite this uh, in front of the National Energy Board, but Notley's in a, in a somewhat desperate situation. She's facing re-election. She's got an uphill battle there against a very aggressive pro-pipeline advocate in Jason Kennedy, the United Conservatives, and she needs to show that she's fighting for Alberta, and that's what she did yesterday. Yeah, I wonder how much of a rug she took out from under him by taking uh, that approach on the climate plan, which has been a bone of contention provincially within Alberta itself. Vaughn? 
Well, she's not backing off her carbon tax. She says she's just gonna not going to increase it. Um, she wants construction underway, wants shovels in the ground. I don't know if that's doable. I mean, I would think the question that Ottawa is facing today is that the Prime Minister is, is fond of Notley, would like to help her, but can he save her by doing something dramatic enough? I mean, it may be that whatever Ottawa does at this point, uh, construction will not start in time for the Alberta election next spring. And um, Jason Kenney's going to win that election. I mean, it's a, it's a very desperate political situation for Notley. I agree she handled it very well and laid out the drama of the situation and the, and the crisis for the whole country. But uh, I'm not sure at this point there's an awful lot that can be done to get pipeline construction started before her election. Uh, don't under- underestimate Rachel Notley just yet. Elections are interesting things. We'll have to see how she does. Uh, Shannon, I'm kind of curious, one of the things that played out almost simultaneously with the court decision yesterday was shareholders from Kinder Morgan taking a whole three minutes uh, to vote 99% in favor of uh, the sale of the pipeline to uh, to the Trudeau government. Uh, a lot of the knee-jerk reaction as, as that happened was was like, oh God, here we go, look at those guys, the shareholders made out like bandits, did they? Well, I have to wonder what the one percent who voted against the sale were thinking. Um, I mean, I guess <laughs> it's very, uh, you know, uh, somewhat unusual to have a unanimous decision. But honestly, given what's been going on around this project, like, why don't you want to sell it to the federal government? Um, I do think there was, you know, there's a lot of people that feel, yeah. You know, they've managed to sell this pipeline for considerably um, more than many people feel that it is worth. And the expansion of it is totally up in the air at this point in time. I mean, um, you know, Green Party leader Andrew Weaver feels that the project, the expansion project, is going to die the death of a thousand paper cuts after the federal government punts it past federal election that we're going to see next year. Um, you know, it was definitely a very dramatic uh, dramatic morning. We got the Supreme Court decision, and then I think it was within about half an hour or so the the deal was approved. So certainly uh, a fast pace to things yesterday morning. I just want to call back quickly to your comment at the beginning of the show about mm. how busy this year has been. I walked in the door of the BC legislature on the first day of the fall session last year, just in time for for Speaker Daryl Plekis to make a very uh, dramatic entrance, and it really just hasn't stopped since then. And everybody kind of told me that August would be very quiet and very relaxing (laughs) and and to catch your breath, and this has been about the busiest, one of the busiest weeks I've had to cover so far. Uh, I'm just kind of curious before we head to the bottom of the hour break uh, from Keith and Vaughn. Uh, a lot of again, some of the from the bench commentary uh, uh, throughout yesterday was the was uh, sort of a, a negative reflection on the Trudeau government for buying the pipeline at all uh, prior to this court case, which sort of has radically redefined the pipeline itself. Uh, valid or no, Keith? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of confusion about this. I've, I heard people saying yesterday, "Well, we spent 4.5 billion dollars for a pipeline that we can't build." No, there are two different pipelines here. There is the existing pipeline, which was we paid $4.5 billion for, and there's the other expansion pipeline, which will be 
you know, between six to nine billion dollars uh, uh, if it ever does get built. So the pipeline right now is, from all analysts I've seen, is a profitable operation. It makes money. It charges companies money to to send their product through that pipeline. But it is an old pipeline. It's an aging pipeline. At some point, the economics for it will flip, and it will no longer be as profitable uh, as it is now, or in fact, it becomes totally unprofitable. But that's still a ways away. So right now, I think it's a it's a purchase. As Shannon says, it's probably maybe the, it was too much to pay up front. Over time, that money will be uh, earned back, but at some point, it's going to be a problem, which is why the expansion was there in the first place. They need a second pipeline. So uh, it's, it's taken on a different life now because of the rejection of this, but I think the focus has to be going forward on whether or not it, there's a second pipeline built. The current pipeline, even though it's six years old and does bring a leak from time to time, still makes money. Okay, final word to you, Vaughn. Yeah, and, and the existing pipeline, by the way, ships a fair amount of oil to the United States, where they are only too happy to take oil from Canada for those five refineries in Washington State. Worth keeping in mind the next time you hear the governor of Washington State grandstanding on how evil and awful it would be if we started shipping oil out of our refinery. Which he did on Twitter just yesterday. <laughs> All right, uh, like I said, a lot of things going on. We'd uh, plan to talk about uh, the opioid overdose lawsuit launched in this segment. We're going to push that and other conversations to the next segment. Our conversation with uh, Keith, Vaughn, and Shannon will continue on Radio NL's Inside Politics right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning. Welcome back. Uh, again, a beautiful day here in Kamloops. Uh, always good to talk to the three people I have in the line, Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Shannon Waters. Uh, guys, David Eby this week uh, made some news. He announced a, a lawsuit against uh, basically a, a range of pharmaceutical companies uh, looking to win back some costs uh, incurred from the overdose crisis. Uh, I was struck by sort of the shades of comparison we could possibly draw to the tobacco lawsuit that's been going on since, what, 1998, which was led by uh, plucky government minister at the time named Joy McPhail. Uh, frivolous move, Vaughn, or, or kind of a bold statement? Well, Joy is now the chair of the board at ICBC and talks regularly to David Eby on the rescue plan for ICBC. And I wonder if she went through her old files and said, hey, you know what, uh, David, you can grandstand on this idea of a lawsuit against the opioid manufacturers. It uh, may take 20 years for it to get anywhere, but uh, it, it works very, very well in terms of coverage. And it did work very, very well in terms of coverage, but I don't know how realistic it is for a provincial government to take on Big Pharma. It certainly didn't deliver anything in the way of results when they took on Big Tobacco. McPhail actually announced that attack plan 22 years ago this September. Uh, The case was actually filed in 1998. Yeah. Now, way back when. Uh, at the end of the day, I mean, the overdose crisis is, has been a horrific turn of events uh, that has shaken this province, this country, uh, for a couple of years running now and continues to this day. And I, I caught myself wondering, uh, as David Eby was making his announcement, um, will this have any impact on actually trying to get a handle on what's going on out there as people lose their lives every single day across Canada and here in B.C.? Shannon? I don't know that it will. I mean, I I will give the province credit for sort of trying to take some action on this front. They put a lot of money into this anti-stigma campaign about, you know, addiction issues, which 
is one of the issues around the overdose crisis. People are ashamed of of their their substance use and and so use alone and then end up overdosing. It's happened, you know, thousands of times. I don't know that taking you know, trying to take these companies to court changes any of that. But I have to say, I can't really disagree with the principle of the thing. There are other governments who are taking similar action and trying to hold these companies responsible for the destruction that they, they feel that they have caused. This has been going on in the States. There's also a case that's currently before the Ontario court. Um, it's another class action. It does not involve the government, um, but it involves um, multiple plaintiffs from multiple provinces. And there's a $20 million settlement currently on the table. An Ontario judge is looking at whether or not that is sufficient, and then judges in the other provinces would have to sign off on it. So it's not recouping the cost for government, but it would be an acknowledgement that there is some liability and some responsibility here on the part of these companies that have made so much money off of drugs that have caused so many people so much misery. Yeah. Uh, Paul Doroshenko was making that point to me yesterday, too, that uh, uh, that there are a range of settlements going on on this very topic throughout the United States. But I guess that raises the question. I mean, even if we get some kind of a hefty settlement out of this, um, I'm not entirely sure where those monies goes. I, I assume they go back into general revenue. And would they then, you know, maybe uh, to make it more palatable, should it be earmarked uh, to go back directly into the overdose crisis itself? How does that play out, even if we cash in on this, Keith? Well, all money government gets basically goes into general revenue. I mean, from time to time, governments pretend they've got a special fund, but the way accounting works, it's just uh, it, it all goes into to general revenue, and presumably some of it could be spent on uh, on this particular area, fighting that scourge. But again, we're a long way from getting any money uh, in terms of a lawsuit. And you mentioned uh, Doroshenko mentioned the United States. That's the key to this. Uh, Joy McPhail launched her uh, attack on big. Uh, tobacco. It wasn't until the states got involved in a in a significant way where you actually started to see settlements coming uh, in the United States to the tunes of uh, billions of dollars. And it really, Canada again doesn't have much muscle, and BC uh, again is far below Canada in terms of having uh, any heft. Uh, at, uh, at the table. So we need to get the United States involved, and they are involved in the crisis. You know, we, it is a crisis in Canada. It is a huge crisis in the United States. Opioid uh, deaths uh, and overdoses have become a scourge in so many American, and not, not, we're not talking inner cities in the States. We're talking small towns and suburbia. Uh, the New York Times has done some incredible reporting uh, documenting just how big a crisis it is, it is in small town America, and it's when those American states also start to get together and band together to have their own class action lawsuits against big pharma that I think you'll see some progress made. So I agree with Shannon. It's hard to argue with the against the principle of this fight, but uh, BC on its own is not, is a is a little pinprick against the uh, big pharma. It needs the Americans uh, to act in concert. Uh, Doroshenko also underscoring the point that the, the provincial government could definitely tilt the field in its advantage by litigating, or sorry, legislating how this whole thing is litigated. Devon? Well, they could, but, you know, Keith uh, is quite right that the Americans, states, made huge progress with big tobacco. They got hundreds of million, billions of dollars out of the tobacco producers, and we're still waiting to see a penny. So I would say that our their legal system is, I would think, 
from my reading of it, tipped in favor, much more than ours, in favor of these suits succeeding, that money all went into American general revenues in those states, and it's long since been spent. So, um, you know, I think... The odds are against British Columbia getting very far in this. I do agree that somebody should be holding the opioid manufacturers to account for this, but I don't think it's going to be British Columbia. Any other governments signing on that we know of yet, Shannon? I, I know David Eby was said that uh, uh, they've extended an invitation. Yeah, and I don't, I mean, BC so far really has been the hardest hit um, with the opioid and the overdose crisis. Um, I know that our former health minister, Terry Lake, has been in Ontario basically telling them, and they have, they have definitely seen some impact from this, but telling them that sort of more is coming and that the situation is going to get worse before it gets better. Of course, in Ontario, you also have a government that has decided to push the pause button on opening safe injection sites to try and stop people from from overdosing because they say there's not enough evidence to suggest that these sites are really helpful, which... I will say is basically baloney. All of the all of the research that we have shows that these sites do help. They they stop people from dying. There hasn't been a single fatal overdose at any of BC's um, safe injection or overdose prevention sites, and more than fourteen hundred people died last year. So I don't know that there's going to be a lot of appetite from the other provinces anytime soon. Um, but you know, BC, even after a couple of years of declaring this a, uh, a public health emergency, has not yet really managed to turn the tide on the opioid and overdose yeah. crisis. So it is likely that other provinces are going to see the issue become more acute there, and maybe that will will sort of change their minds and maybe make them want to get on board with what BC is doing. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, since it's funny you referenced Terry Lake, because uh, as we were speaking, he's texted me and obviously listening in uh, and said he asked bureaucracy in the health ministry to look into suing opioid makers over two years ago. It was deemed to be a lot of work with a little chance of success. Keith? Well, I mean, Terry would know uh, what he's talking about, having been the minister there. Um, I'm not surprised there was a bit of a pushback there from the bureaucracy because I think they have a more sober read of of things than, than the political politicians who, you know, get get the headlines, uh, whether it's grandstanding or not. But having said that, I mean, it's uh, what Evie and Judy Darcy said, emotion is going to be a long-term play. As Vaughn said, this will take years to, to sort itself out. And But I go back to my main point that BC on its own is uh, just doesn't have the heft to make much of an impact. Okay, let's uh, hammer off a couple quick court topics before we move on to the next segment. Uh, among them, the independent contractors, a bunch of them, the ICBA, uh, CLAC, etc., have launched a legal challenge against the new labor agreement. Uh, you think they got some, some headway under that thing, Vaughn, or no? Well, the interesting thing will be if they get access to cabinet confidence cabinet confidentiality. Eby's a big fan of the idea of lifting the lid on cabinet confidentiality on money laundering. Will he disclose and share with uh, the ICBA and the public what the cabinet estimation is of the full cost of the union-favoring policy that the New Democrats have adopted if extended to all public sector infrastructure construction in B.C.? We know that it is supposed to add at least $100 million to the cost of replacing the Patello Bridge. be interesting if this lawsuit actually uncovers details on how much it'll cost right across the board. Yeah, it will be interesting. I think there's an argument to be made for opening up access. Uh, Keith? 
can never argue against opening up access. Uh, I'm not sure how far along this lawsuit will go. Uh, it's interesting. The ICBA is also uh, launch has launched uh, its own suit. That's uh, not going anywhere soon against the referendum on proportional representation. So the ICBA is suddenly emerging as the main uh, sort of counterpoint or or uh, private sector enemy of the NDP government. I wouldn't be surprised if if they get active in litigation on other NDP policies in the future. Yeah, Ravi Kailan making the point. He calls them a a arm of the Liberal Party out there, Shannon. Yeah, I I was tweeting about the fact, I think actually responding to your tweet about this suit that was going on and, and pointing out that the ICBA is involved as well as CLAC. And I had a few people get back to me on Twitter about, well, who isn't the ICBA doing at this point in time? I agree they crop up all the time in and around various government issues, often taking the NDP to task or challenging their their policy decisions and their actions. They're not really getting anywhere on prop rep. They just had an injunction um, to stop the referendum that's coming up this fall from taking place until their court challenge can be heard on the issue. Um, but I don't know. I mean, when it comes to to the union labor agreement, I, I think we're going to have to see. Like you said, EB has said, you know, we want to open up cabinet privilege around money laundering. But it is kind of a can of worms argument, especially if they put legislation on the table um, to make it so that governments can be forced to sort of give up cabinet privilege under specific circumstances, I'm assuming. Uh, last word to you, Vaughn. Do you think the, the proportional representation uh, lawsuit or challenge, I guess, is, is, does that have steam or no? I don't think so. You know, the government can legislate something like a referendum. Uh, I'd be surprised if that goes anywhere. They may not get very far on challenging the uh, the union-only or union-favoring rules as well. On that one, though, they might actually get access to some documents and material that would add to the controversy with the public, because it's clear this policy will add to the cost of public construction in B.C. Okay, uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll tackle Shannon's favorite topic on the other side, uh, the province's finances. Uh, a lot more on Inside Politics on Radio NL right after this. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. From both sides of the floor, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning. Welcome back. We had a peek at the province's uh, books this week. Uh, we were wondering on the hydro and ICBC front what the year-end numbers would show. Uh, we finally got a little bit of revelation on that side as well as uh, some well, some battles again with the Auditor General. We'll get into all of that now. Uh, Keith, uh, we were looking at uh, these numbers and, and waiting to see what they would hold because there was a, a lot of questions on some fronts. Uh, what did we learn? Well, we learned that, um, you know, the NEP's first... Uh Attempt at managing the books came off fairly well. They've been hit. This, of course, is last year's numbers, so it's half BC Liberal, half NDP in terms of uh, managing uh, the books. Uh, but they came in with a surplus. Uh, ICBC did come in with a certified deficit of 1.3 billion dollars. So David Eby wasn't making that up. Uh, the other general, though, continues to express concern over the what's called the deferral accounts of BC Hydro. BC Hydro deferring billions of dollars of expenses and spending to be booked in later years. But, they, but the NDP made a stab at trying to correct that. You're not going to correct that all in one year when it's north of $5 billion. But they had a $950 million, what's called an accounting adjustment. Uh, so they're taking steps to address that. So I think, by and large, 
Uh, it was as good news as you could imagine for the NDP. But having said that, I'm more interested in the first quarterly financial report that will be out in a couple of weeks here, and that's going to be where we stand now in the current fiscal year. And I, the number I'm going to be looking at is the property transfer tax revenues. Uh, they were okay last year. Uh, they came in at, uh, at the number that was expected, in fact, a little bit higher. But with the slump in the housing market in Metro Vancouver and the number of sales declining big time, like 20 to 30 percent, that means those property transfer tax revenues are going to be down when they were projected to be have a $100 million increase. So that's the number I'm most interested in in the next uh, set of books, and that's going to be the quarterly financial report sometime in September. Yeah, Vaughn, on the BC Hydro front, uh, the news out of that was a $950 million adjustment, but uh, things continue to be a little interesting on the hydro front, uh, especially where the Auditor General is concerned, but uh, specifically with those deferral accounts. Yeah, I mean, the government was asked what it's going to do about the rest of the deferrals since, uh, as Keith pointed out, there's still $4.5 billion in deferrals there. And the government said, well, look, you know, this is a start, and we're not claiming that solves the problem. The Auditor General still has concerns. But what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at expenditures at Hydro. We're going to review the whole situation. We're then going to send the whole matter to the Independent Utilities Commission. And going to make the Utilities Commission really independent on this, and they're going to deal with the whole issue and decide if a rate increases is needed to deal with all that. And the interesting question at the very end of all that, after they'd explained that, was to Carol James, you're really going to let the Utilities Commission say, you know, rates have to go up? Well, yes. Well, what if it's 10%? And she said, well, I'm not going to speculate on what the Utilities Commission might do. And and this is the reason. Why did the Liberals defer stuff for years, you know? They knew what they were doing. It was to head off rate increases that they knew the public would have trouble swallowing. We'll see whether the New Democrats are willing to bite the bullet on all this when it comes right down to Utilities Commission saying you're going to have to increase rates to fix this problem. Yeah. Uh, Let's circle back to the housing situation, Shannon, because uh, property transfer tax revenues uh, to some degree have sort of saved the day in the last uh, year or two doing the housing boom. Uh, That has definitely cooled off. Uh, Can we keep relying on that or or is that going to be a bit of a problem going ahead? Well, Carol James did say, essentially, that the government is preparing to take a hit on those revenues. They are expecting them to go down as the housing market cools. And one of the things that James basically said is that's that's what they're looking for. To quote, we want the market to moderate. She feels that the bigger concern, aside from the government figuring out how uh, to keep things in the black, is the fact that a large part of BC's economy has been built on the back of what many feel is a highly speculative housing market. And so, you know, essentially the finance minister has said, yes, we expect that we're going to lose money here. We expect that this is no longer sort of going to be a cash cow for us, and we think that's a good thing. What she didn't explain is sort of what they expect the other revenue sources to be, particularly considering they still have a fairly aggressive spending agenda um, going forward. Uh, by the way, and I'll just put it on the floor for anyone to answer, but any sign from Carol James or anyone in government that they're going to put a stop to that dividend issue with on both ICBC and Hydrofronts or no? Well, they've they made it clear they're not taking money from ICBC. Uh, hydro is a different animal, though. I think there's, there's a hydro dividend, 
And then there's just the money, uh, the contribution from hydro, which I don't think will be as great as in the past, but they're still going to be taking money from hydro, is my understanding, but not from ICBC. Okay. Uh, NAFTA deal, I know the premiers were, were briefed yesterday, and there's been some... <laughs> there's oh, been it's certainly a some... story out of the <laughs> Toronto Star. Yeah. They got their hands on an off-the-record briefing Trump gave to Bloomberg News in which he boasted he wasn't going to make any compromises at all for Canada, that everything was a bluff. Uh, this has upended the talks, as far as I can tell, on Twitter, following reporters who are staked out following this in Washington are just completely slack-jawed uh, that this is broke, that uh, this could wreck everything. It's, it's an amazing story from, uh, from the Toronto Star. Yeah, it is. It's an absolutely amazing story. Do we have any idea what the Prime Minister told the Premier's Vaughn at all or no? Uh, no, but look, our, our national government really missed what was going on here. Uh, Trump is on a strategy where uh, he's going to go to the American people this fall with them heading for midterm elections saying, look, I said I was going to play hardball. I played hardball and I got concessions from Mexico, and now I'm putting the squeeze on Canada. And I think our government missed uh, what was going on for five weeks between Mexico and the United States, that they were quietly working on a deal that the outgoing president of Mexico wanted. There was a number in the Wall Street journalist week, Shane, about how many meetings Mexico had with the uh, Trump government officials, including Trump's son-in-law on this. They got what they wanted, and we just sat there on our hands going, oh, we don't have to worry about this. We'll see it through the midterm elections. I think our national government really let us down on this file. Yeah, I'm going to read one of the quotes from Donald Trump from Daniel Dale's story. Off the record, Canada's working their ass off, and every time we have a problem with a point, I just put up a picture of a Chevrolet Impala. Uh, It's not the most pertinent point, but I find it the funniest, Shannon. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is just so, I mean, it's both worrying, deeply concerning, but just also slightly ridiculous. I mean, Trump has made statements to say that he doesn't really care about how the deal comes out with Canada because Mexico is the more important trading partner, the bigger trading partner. This is not true. Um, You know, he may still not care about Canada and not be willing to budge on, on any of these issues, but he has this insanely sort of um, interesting, for lack of a better word, mix of just being completely bombastic and then incredibly hard-nosed and stubborn about certain issues that he does manage to leverage, you know, quite effectively. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He continues to be an adventure. Guys, uh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for hanging around with me for the full hour, and I want to wish you the best on this long weekend. Take care, Shannon. Happy Labor Day. Bye-bye. There you go. There's Shannon, Keith, and Vaughn on Inside Politics, and that does it for today's show. I want to wish all of you a happy long weekend. We'll see you on the other side again here on Radio NL next Friday. 1230 Merritt, 1340 Ashcroft Cash Creek. From CHNL in Kamloops, this is Radio NL 610 AM. Local News Now.